This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Good to be back. We had to miss a week there. I always hate that. But sometimes the guests just can't make it, and that's the way it goes. This week, as our guest, we've got Shirag Modri of supply chain software provider Blue Yonder. Blue Yonder just completed a survey of its clients, and he's going to talk about the results of it as well as other issues and other trends he sees in the supply chain software space and the supply chain in general. Let's talk about oil. Something happened this week that had not happened at that magnitude since 2013. The Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration's weekly report on a huge amount of data added 239,000 barrels per day to its base refining capacity figure for the U.S. That number is published every week, but since refining capacity is not the kind of thing that changes frequently, the week-to-week number is usually zero. The change this past week, almost assuredly, is as a result of the growth in refining capacity at the Beaumont, Texas refinery of ExxonMobil. That addition was, the the fact that the addition was online was announced several weeks ago, but whatever processes the EIA needed to add to the base took some time, and you see 239,000 barrels per day of new capacity in their weekly figure. As mentioned, that much has not been added in in one week for 10 years. For diesel consumers, new refining capacity anywhere in the world is good news. You can make the sort of perfect economics 101 argument that a new barrel of capacity anywhere in the world is the same thing as a new barrel of capacity next door. But the reality is that next door barrel is going to have a lot fewer freight costs to get to the market. So for U.S. consumers, those new barrels coming on in Beaumont, Texas are a lot more valuable than new barrels of capacity that might come on in Brazil. Refining has been a great business for the people who own refineries for the past few years, in part because of a lack of new capacity coming online, even as some old capacity closed. You weren't going to get the, de- the kind of decline in consumption that we had as a result of the pandemic and not see an impact on the facilities that make those fuels. The problem is that new capacity, which is always being built somewhere in the world, was slowed by the pandemic. So you had closures even as you had a slowdown in the construction of new capacity. We talked a few weeks ago about the giant new refinery in Nigeria, known as Dangote. It's more than 600,000 barrels per day. And just tell you, since you're not probably all refining experts, that big a new refinery is enormous. It's one of the world's largest. It has started operating in just the past few weeks. And now, of course, closer to home, you've got 250,000 barrels per day of nameplate capacity added in Beaumont, although the the EIA lists that new capacity as 239, as mentioned. The difference isn't important. You can stick whatever number you want on it, but the reality is the capacity is there and it's working in the market. It's not the type of thing adding new capacity where you see any sort of 
immediate decline in prices as a result. But ultimately, more capacity puts downward pressure on the spread between crude and diesel or crude and gasoline. Let's remember that that spread for diesel, as measured in the futures market last year, got as high as $1.50 to $1.60. There may have been a couple of days when it was even higher than that. Now that number is less than 60 cents. That's not just some random number that deals only with traders. Ultimately, for buyers, the decline in that spread is absolutely one of the reasons why the retail price of diesel is down. As measured by the EIA weekly number that's used for most fuel surcharges, it's down now 18 out of 19 weeks. There are plenty of reasons, but new refining, new refining capacity certainly has helped, has played a very big role. That higher EIA number for capacity is just one side of it. Going to move on here now on drilling teeth. You know, last year I attended the Gartner Supply Chain Symposium in Orlando, uh, and I think I got about four podcasts out of it. There were just so many fascinating people who made presentations there that I went to them afterward and I said, would you like to join me on Drilling Deep? So uh, I went to it this year again, same thing, where maybe we're not going to get four podcasts out of it, but it was just as fascinating as always. And I did have the opportunity to sit down with several executives from Blue Yonder while I was there. And, uh, and I thought that the discussion with them was the type of thing that I would like to expand upon here on Drilling Deep. So I wanted to bring on a guest from, uh, from Blue Yonder to, that, I, uh, that I spoke with uh, at Gartner. Actually, Sharag Modi uh, was not at Gartner, but he's with us today. He is the Corporate Vice President of Industry Strategy at Blue Yonder. And first of all, Sharag, welcome to Drilling Deep. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for having me. And then the other thing is, you know, when I, whenever I deal with companies that provide software to the uh, software solutions to the supply chain, I know that I'm really terrible at describing what they do uh, because every company does something a little bit different. Every company describes their product in a different way. Blue Yonder is a little different than most in that it's kind of a soup to nuts solution and that it does pretty much everything in the supply chain. You know, you find other companies that are a little more niche driven. Um, so I'm going to let you talk about Blue Yonder and what it does. Oh, thank you, John. Uh, so Blue Yonder, we are the category leader within supply chain solution space. And when you think about software solutions, which drive decisions for, you know, professionals within supply chain space, when you start talking about supply chain planning, you know, integrated demand and supply planning, you know, demand forecasting, um, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's retailer, we do we do help out uh, every client within that space. Um, fast forward to uh, you know after planning, you need to execute on those plans, and we help out uh, with our solutions within that space as well. So that it, that includes your warehouse management, transportation management, your order management, um, you know reverse logistics, pretty much everything you can think of. Um, you know, we are we are able to provide uh, that help to our clients. So, are most of your clients shippers? Uh, are they the kind of let's say big retailers or big manufacturers, OEMs that then feed their product into the supply chain? Are those the biggest users of the Blue Yonder solution? It's actually um, uh, roughly one third, one third, one third. And the third category, which I didn't describe earlier, is the third party logistics firms. So, a lot of these manufacturers and retailers they outsource their operations. So even though they may keep some of the planning activities in-house, they use third-party logistics firms for executing on those plans. So roughly one-third of our business is, 
is within the manufacturing, one third within, uh, you know, within the retail, and then the rest in uh, in in a three PL space. All right. And let's just point out that your ownership now is 100% by Japan's Panasonic, correct? That is correct. Yeah, Panasonic bought us uh, about two years ago, September of 2021. Has that resulted in any changes in the company? Um, so certainly there's some leadership changes, uh, as you would right, uh, expect with uh, any new owner coming in. Uh, but honestly, all of the changes have been tremendous positive. Um, you know, for the bulk of our history, we were uh, we were owned by uh, you know different VC or private equity firms, and now we have an owner who is not looking at you know next three to five years, but looking at you know ten to twenty year plans, and they have uh, they have a history of making uh, impact at a society level with wherever they invest money in, uh, wherever they build products. Um, so we we are. Really, really excited about having Panasonic as part of our, uh, you know, part of our Panasonic family, I guess. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So, Sharad, the uh, the main reason why your people reached out to me prior to Gardner was that you had just released a survey, the results of a survey of companies you deal with and their feelings on the supply chain and whether it was that much better, that much worse, or the same. And really, the, the kind of headline finding in that survey was that 80%, 87% of organizations had faced supply chain disruptions over the prior year, and it was 88% a year before. And, you know, the kind of basic narrative out there is that things in the supply chain had gotten a lot better, and you had, you had only a, you know, 100 basis point improvement in people who actually said that things were better. Um, so what's going on out there that there was no improvement? Yeah, it's it's funny how, uh, how uh, data shows up, right? Uh, they generally don't lie. Um, and we have been working with clients throughout this time and, and even uh, even before pandemic for the matter. And we generally have a good pulse on, you know, what, what's happening in the marketplace. So I was, uh, I was going to quote you a small um, uh, information from, um, uh, from the book I read years ago called Goal by uh, Elio Gorbrat, uh, that any, any supply chain will have bottlenecks. And if bottlenecks uh, stop in one area, it will pop up somewhere else. So most uh, times when um, when you heard the news or or read it in Wall Street Journal or elsewhere, it was uh, it was driven by the ships uh, being uh, you know being waiting to be unloaded, etc. But now the issues are not that. The issues are elsewhere in the supply chain, uh, and they could be as simple as I can't find enough suppliers to supply products to me. For my, um, you know, for my, um, you know, retailers and manufacturing capacity, uh, I can't find enough labor because the labor which I lost during pandemic, they haven't come back in the exact same amount of quantity they they decided to not hold back. So all of those pieces kind of play into why you are continuing to see challenges from disruption perspective. What the data also doesn't show you, John, is the intensity of disruption. 
meaning if the intensity was really, really high in terms of disruption last year, um, if it may or may not be as high of an intensity, and I can tell you this for sure, that it has definitely gotten better. It just, we are just not out of the woods yet. And it's not as bad as, you know, last year when the ships were waiting to be unloaded. We don't have as bad as a challenge. Yeah, you think about, yeah, I mean, the, the, I guess the way the question was posed is, have you experienced supply chain disruptions? I mean, given what you just said about bottlenecks, you fix some here, then they pop up there. I mean, you can imagine in, in the course of a year, almost everybody's going to have some supply chain disruptions. Never, nothing ever works 100% uh, fully. And then you think about the disruptions, let's say from a year and a half ago, when they couldn't get chips and they literally had to shut down auto production lines. So even if those yeah. auto production lines maybe still dealt with some problems, they weren't shutting down. So things are certainly much better. Yeah, and you also have to look at it from how humans behave, John. In terms of our disruption, our benchmark is in 2020 and 2021. And now that our benchmark is so low, if you will, um, when you start thinking about a little bit here and there, uh, which may have happened last year, our our view there is like, okay, you know what? It ain't as bad as what it was three years ago. And, you know, the, and that's really where I would, I would quote this as is, is how humans respond to this. The, some of these surveys kind of play a big role into how you decide what disruption is. And that's really kind of where we come from is we work with these clients and we can, we can decide based on what we are seeing with them. You know, how bad of a disruption are we talking about? How big of an intensity are we talking about here? Yeah, how much do you think might be driven by the, by higher costs? Let's say somebody can get a part, can get a chip, whatever, mm -hmm. that maybe they couldn't have gotten a year and a half ago, but they just don't like the price because it's a lot higher. So they say, yeah, we've got supply chain problems. Well, maybe you really don't have supply chain problems, but you've got a price problem. Yeah, so cost definitely plays a big role. Uh, the other uh, piece which plays a big role is the geopolitical tensions. The uh, reliance on offshore, you know, where the, well, China in particular, and a lot of companies wanting to diversify their supply base, that also adds into the disruption because they won't be able to find anybody right away, which is going to match the exact same quality, exact same timeline, exact everything right off the bat. So part of the disruption piece, which you saw in the survey, is also driven by some of those geopolitical tensions. How much do you think the nearshoring phenomenon is just talk and how much of it is real? And if it's real, how much do you think might end up kind of washing on the shores of disappointment that, you know, the, that for all the problems of having some of your supply chain needs supplied from abroad, to bring them back to North America in one shape or another is just too difficult. It's it's real. It's very, very real. And we may have had some false starts in the past, but this time around, it's very real. So I'll give you a very small example. Prologis just uh, you know released a report that the hottest markets in uh, you know south of the border are in Tijuana and. Um, uh, and Juarez. And this is the commercial real estate uh, manufacturing as well as distribution space. They can't find enough space there. There's just not enough land to even build more uh, for what they need. 
this is no different than uh, you know 1.3 percent vacancy rate, which was reported in LA area, you know, not too long ago, uh, for uh, for the commercial real estate. This is real. This is not going anytime soon. And and the other announcements, such as uh, Toyota, uh, and this announcement came out about a month or two ago, um, you know, and uh, pretty pretty big press about it is. They are basically looking at building two supply chains for their global supply chains. One which is independent of China and one which is dependent on China. And they are decoupling U.S. and China supply chains, wanting to ensure that if something were to happen, they don't have any disruptions in their supply chain. You know, you, it's pretty massive news. You know, given given the aging of the Chinese population, you can almost argue that the the emphasis on China as a supplier was probably inevitable. It was probably going to happen one day or another. At least that's my view. Um, how much did the uh, how much did COVID speed that up? Um, I, I don't think it was COVID itself per se. Um, I, I agree with your assessment, though. It was some at some point it was going to happen. I think the non-COVID factors are playing a big role in it, John. It's the policies of the prior administration, um, you know, the trade uh, deficit imbalance, um, the, you know, the political issues with regarding China Sea and, and more recently with, uh, with now Cuba, for example, um, you know, China setting up, you know, spy stations in Cuba. I mean, all of those pieces kind of play a much, much bigger role and not to even mention Taiwan for that matter. Um, all of those roles, uh, all of those issues actually played a much bigger role than COVID itself. Okay. Let's go back to Gartner, even again, even though you weren't there. And really, it was the AI meeting in a lot of ways. Uh, mm -hmm. AI, I mean, between the meeting I went to the prior year and this one, the whole idea of chat GPT had, had uh, arisen. Mm -hmm. AI is not new to the supply chain, but, you know, chat GPT and, you know, it's so... The potential is so enormous, and sometimes it's almost kind of scary that it's almost like it changed the entire thread of the meeting in just twelve months, and that's all that anybody talked about. So let's start with your views um, again. Looking at the um, looking at uh, some of the things that you have written, or at least your company has produced, the, the survey results. I'm going to read reading right here now. The survey results said AI can be helpful primarily in four areas: inventory and network optimization warehouse resource management, supply chain risk management, and demand forecasting. So a lot of those capabilities already existed before ChatGPT. So how much have advances in AI advanced advanced their use in those four things? And where does ChatGPT play a role? And, and we won't just call it ChatGPT. Um, the, the, I guess the more formal term is generative AI. That, that's correct. Yeah. And so rightly said, John, it, those capabilities some of those, if not all of them, already existed. So I was at Microsoft uh, Tech Center a couple of days ago in Chicago, and you know they kind of went through some of those details with me. Um, those capabilities have existed for almost 20 years now. So it's not relatively new, but the generative AI piece is the one which is causing uh, a lot more uh, news, if you will. Um, and the piece is here to stay from automation perspective. Some of those pieces have been taken into account in the solutions which we build and have built and have been using. 
Um, but some, there's a lot more opportunities. Uh, the code base aspect of it is where some of the opportunities exist. Uh, then there are opportunities with respect to better uh, forecasting engines, um, but not just better in the sense of doing a better forecast accuracy per se, but also responsiveness of it. Because even some of those pieces today, they're dependent on people utilizing certain factors within the system to change their forecast a little bit. Versus with the generative AI piece, it's learning in the background. And that learning process feeds information back to your system, which helps you speed things up. So the decisioning aspect is much, much, much quicker. Uh, there was a quote somewhere, and I don't know how uh, accurate the quote is, but the quote was, uh, every one and a half years, our knowledge is going to double as a humankind because of the regenerative AI piece. And that, that is a massive, massive claim. Um, one and a half years. I mean, that's, that's like 18 months. I mean, that's nothing. I mean, do you see generative AI being used in the same way that we've seen demonstrations? I did go to one demonstration um, at the Gartner meeting. It was put on by somebody from IBM, really fascinating stuff, where somebody in the supply chain will just be able to literally use natural language and ask the system a question and get a response kind of written in English. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny uh, you mentioned this because um, uh, one of the quotes uh, Microsoft used uh, a couple of days ago was the hottest language in the world right now, software language is English for the exact same reasons you just mentioned is because of the way uh, you are able to chat if you will, with chat GPT or, or any in general, you know, generative AI, large language models, and the way it's, it's able to respond back to you in the same language, whether it's supply chain language or whether it's uh, any other language, any other, uh, you know, uh, a plumber or electrician or travel agent, uh, it's able to respond back in the same language as you understand it to be. No, and and that's, that's massive. Yeah. Does the Booyahner system at this point have generative AI capabilities? We are uh, testing uh, those pieces as we speak. Um, certainly, I can't go into more details on that front, but but that is that is con. Yes. Okay, and and is that the kind of thing you develop on your own, or are there providers out there that you kind of buy their 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 product off the shelf? I won't say buy their product off the shelf, but where you contract with them, where they take their capabilities and build it into the Blue Yonder system? Or is this all organic that you can do internally? Um, it's it's a combination of both. Uh, you know, in, in terms of some of the capabilities, you definitely won't be able to build it yourself. Um, and you'll have to leverage some others. And some which are very specific to certain use cases which we are able to solve, where we have already identified some gaps, uh, we'll be able to test it with uh, with some of those additional tools we have. You know, the other, the contrast to a Gartner was, you know, you had this incredibly forward-looking technology, cutting-edge system, and everybody's talking about it. And then, you know, you get into discussions with people, and they tell you that they're still battling the spreadsheets. You know, they're just trying to sell their product into companies that, you know, are involved in the supply chain one way or the other, that are still doing a lot of work on spreadsheets. This the lowly spreadsheet, you know, and the contrast between the lowly spreadsheet and generative AI was just fascinating. Are you finding that that's still a, a barrier for you? Uh, plenty of barriers, John. And and that's not going to go away. Let's be realistic about it. 
not every company on the planet is uh, going to be able to replace uh, what they do with the generative AI. Um, uh, could that happen? Will that happen? Eventually, it may. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and predict when it's going to happen because I don't know. Um, but there's going to be plenty of companies where the payback, the financial implications are just not there in terms of the investment they need to make. I mean, we still run into companies where they manage their warehouses and their, you know, 30, 40, $50 million of transportation activities on spreadsheets. Excel is the most widely used tool. Uh, and, and a lot of companies have been running their supply chains in Excel and it works for them. Now, could there be any benefits in associating themselves, uh, them, them with, uh, you know, companies like Bullion or, or so? Of course, there's benefit there, but is the juice worth the squeeze? And that's the only, that's the question those clients will need to answer. Interesting. I'm going to ask you one last question because we're running out of time here. I keep hearing the word resilience. We want a resilient supply chain. And I'm starting to worry a little bit that that word gets thrown around so casually that nobody could really define it. So I'm going to ask you to define it. What's a resilient supply chain? A resilient supply chain is where you don't have to worry about defining it. <laughs> it works by itself. It's learning by itself and it's able to fix by itself. And what I mean by itself is not automatic. The processes are put in place. The tools are put in place. The SLAs are put in place. The accountability is put in place. And, you know, when when one partner doesn't, uh, you know, meet those SLAs for you, uh, whether it's a supplier or, or a 3PL or a transport company or whoever, you already have uh, processes baked into, uh, you know, the whole thing where you don't have to worry about it. And to me, I think how quickly you're able to bounce back is essentially the outcome of all of these processes you have put in place. And I think uh, those plan A's and plan B's were put in place before. Plan C's and D's and E's were not. And I think that's really the reason why resiliency, resiliency word has been thrown around quite a bit is because not every company was geared towards um, having their supply base uh, outside of China, for example. One small example, but now they now have Mexico in plans, or United States in plan, or let's say Vietnam or other countries in plan. That's really kind of where I would I would define resiliency as. I guess you would also define it as you use Blue Yonder software, right? I'll give you that that final opportunity, right? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> listen, that's really where all of these pieces kind of come together, right? I mean, the digital infrastructure needs to meet the physical infrastructure to put in place. And, and that's where the benefits uh, exist for clients. Well, and also one final thing, good luck to Blue Yonder on the PGA Golf Tour. I know John Rahm wears your shirt, correct? Right on, right on the breast. That is correct. Oh, that is correct. Very good. I wonder I how many people, I mean, this is not an obscure player, and I wonder how many people who see that know what Blue Yonder is, but as long as you get a couple of companies that, that know who it is and it, it helps your branding, I'm sure that's worth, worth the price. It, it definitely does. Um, uh, at the time when he won the Masters, uh, there was a lot of load on our website. Let's just say that. That's good. Very good. So we want to thank Shrag Modi. He is Blue Yonder's Corporate Vice President of Industry Strategy for joining us today on Drilling Deep. Shrag, do come back again. Thank you very much for having me here, John. Appreciate it. You have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freight Waves. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms and, of course, 
You can find us on FreightWaves TV at all sorts of wonderful times. Uh, I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.